In early 1911, suffragist newspaper The Vote ran an article entitled Shakespeare's Women, reporting on the writer and poet George O'Dell's speech at a suffragist meeting. O'Dell argued that conservative Victorian ideas of Shakespeare's women had been formed not directly on Shakespeare so much as on what Ruskin had said about Shakespeare's women. So the classic John Ruskin text on Shakespeare's heroines is the essay of Queen's Gardens in Sesame and Lilies. And as you can see, he says, the catastrophe of every play is caused always by the folly or fault of a man, the redemption, if there be any, by the wisdom and virtue of a woman. Um, he represents them as infallibly faithful and wise counsellors, incorruptibly just and pure examples, strong always to sanctify, even when they cannot save. Ruskin also discusses gender relations more generally, ask, arguing women's great function is praise, and for the home as woman's true place and power. A complementary view can be found in Mary Cowden Clarke's 1887 article entitled Shakespeare as the Girl's Friend, which credited Shakespeare with full appreciation of women's highest qualities and yet accurate perception of their defects. Cowden Clarke particularly praised Imogen in Cymbeline for submission to her husband's will and her expression of tender reg regret rather than venom when he abandons her. So these weren't the only Victorian views of Shakespeare's presentation of gender, but this is the kind of Victorian Shakespeare which the suffragists would most oppose. And my title quotation comes from an interview with one such suffragist, the actress Ava Moore. Moore, when asked about actresses' visibility in suffrage protests, claimed, The ordinary man in the crowd, whether he confesses it or no, is impressed by the sight of some well-known stage favourite, exquisitely dressed, belying every suffrage caricature and poster, and bravely carrying her own banner. Well, this striking quotation encapsulates what I want to talk about, the relationship between actresses and suffrage, particularly the well-known stage favourites who were Shakespearean actresses, who in many ways were the most prestigious strata of the profession. So two issues here, actresses, suffragists, actresses, suffragist activities more generally, and the tactics suffragists used in appropriating Shakespeare, and many of these centred on Shakespeare's heroines and the actresses themselves. And I argue that suffragist use of Shakespeare was anticipated by my first exquisitely dressed stage favourite, Lily Langtry, royal mistress and phenomenally successful performer. She regarded Rosalind, the heroine of As You Like It, as her favourite role, and what I've called the cross-dressing controversy occurred in the late 1880s while Langtry was performing Rosalind at various times in both Britain and America. So for Langtry, Shakespeare was professional liberation, making her my own manager, my own mistress, and free from accustomed control. And in particular, she enjoyed cross-dressing. Interviewed by the era, which was like the, the equivalent of the stage, Langtry claimed the charm of playing Rosalind derived from emancipation from petticoats and the sprightly freedom and abandon donned with boys' dress. And critics also noted that, I quote, doublet and hose seemed to make more free, more natural her limbs, so that Langtry moved with grace and ease, her movements free and appropriate. And in the same interview with the era, Langtry questioned why a dress such as her costume as Ro Rosalind or Ganymede had never been devised on such lines for country wear. This reignited a controversy from 1889, which, as the era noted, agitated London society about ladies riding a la cavalier, so on the cross saddle as opposed to side saddle. And the era explains that it was Mrs. Langtry's Rosalind dress that suggested the free, graceful and novel costume that had been adopted by what the newspaper calls advanced women. 
These advanced women included the suffragist war correspondent and president of the British ladies football team, Lady Florence Dixie. And just to tie this in, um, she's from quite a sort of scandalous family. She's Bosie Douglas's aunt. So it's a family who are very well known and associated with scandal. As recorded by the Birmingham Post, Reynolds and other papers, Florence Dixie caused chaos by proposing to attend the first meeting of the Hyde Park Coaching Club in specially tailored breeches. And such was Dixie's commitment to the dress question that her 1905 obituary in the Penny Illustrated, well, she didn't really have an obituary, they just reprinted her most trenchant article on comely dress for women, where she termed conventional Victorian women's fashion a monstrous stack of imbecilities, singling out the Rhining habit for particular condemnation. So, by, so this is all 1889, and by 1890, when Langtry is on stage at the St James's Theatre as Rosalind, Coverage of the controversy goes beyond the theatrical press into the mainstream graphic and the satirical publications such as Judy. In early March 1890, a lady, capital L, wrote to the graphic protesting the right of women to ride in the male way. Yet again, Langtry's costume was proposed as a vehicle for rebellion. The graphic's lady asked why, in electing to ride like man, choose the hideous masculine dress of the present day? What can be prettier than the dress worn by Mrs Langtry as Rosalind? Judy's male satirists were unimpressed, arguing they didn't want Rotten Row turned into a Shakespearean circus. Well, arguably, Hyde Park was already theatrical with its spectacular landscape gardens, Serpentine and Speaker's Corner. The fantasy Eclair was also reappraising green, green spaces as sites for performance, with the rise of open-air Shakespeare companies. With its mix of high-society see-and-be-seen culture, tourists and prostitutes, Hyde Park was already a place for performing a range of identities, some respectable, some not. So for discovery, self-discovery and impersonation, the Renaissance Forest of Arden and Victorian urban green space were not dissimilar. Langtry's undoubted femininity and centrality to the fashionable mainstream allowed women, by taking her costume to Hyde Park, to imitate a fashion icon and perform their own emancipation from petticoats in an urban forest of Arden. Langtry, later a member of the Actresses' Franchise League, the AFL, thus anticipated Edwardian suffragist actresses who, as Ava Moore noted, also belied every suffragist poster, poster and caricature by being simultaneously fashionable and political. These actresses included Gertrude Elliott, Irene and Violet Vambra and Lila McCarthy, some of whom I'll discuss. So the suffragists used Shakespeare in several ways. A typical claim, rejecting Ruskin's Shakespeare, was that Shakespeare would definitely have supported women's suffrage had he been alive in the 19th century. The actress Ellen Terry lectured on Shakespeare's women for the suffragist theatre group, The Pioneer Players, in 1911. And the Vote newspaper reported excitedly that Terry had described Shakespeare as one of the pioneers of women's emancipation and Shakespeare's heroines as having more in common with our modern revolutionaries than the fragile domestic ornaments of the 30s and 40s. The vote further dis disambiguated Terry in its headline, Shakespeare as Suffragist. George O'Dell also claimed that Shakespeare's cross-dressed heroines, especially Portia the lawyer, demonstrated Shakespeare's belief that the great thing for women is to act, to use the means that will gain some ends, thus using this to justify suffragette militancy. Increasingly, suffragists also co-opted the Shakespeare cultural industry, above all the Stratford-upon-Avon festivals of performances and events around Shakespeare's birthday. The festival's procession to Shakespeare's grave was particularly important. In 1909, the newspaper Votes for Women 
reported that the most conspicuous pilgrims were undoubtedly the band of suffragettes, who carried bouquets in the colours of purple, green and white, which were the WSPU colours. I've shown them there. Simultaneously, the NUWSS in Stratford disp displayed a banner reading, to be or not to be. The banner was yellow and black, the heraldic colours of both Stratford Town and the Shakespeare family. So some visitors, particularly around the time of the festival, would have been reminded of the Shakespeare family's heraldic motto, not without right, which usually accompanies the colours. This implied the suffragists' right to be present, not only at the festival, but in politics. And these appropriations align suffragists with Shakespeare and the festival's associations of cultural capital, legitimacy and patriotism, patriotism exemplifying the benefits of using Shakespeare. Avermore asserted the ability of the well-known stage favourite, exquisitely dressed, to use her erotic capital and celebrity endorsement to persuade men of the suffragist cause. However, suffragist women also drew directly onto the Shakespearean actress as a resource. Back to Ellen Terry. The designer Edie Craig drew on her mother, Ellen Terry's popularity, to promote her company, The Pioneer Players. Terry acted as president and regularly lectured for their benefit, so without taking a fee, thus funding their productions of more overtly suffragist drama. Audiences for Terry's lectures included regional suffrage groups, so she lectures to the Leeds Suffrage Society and I think one in Bristol and certainly some in America and Canada. And the critic Catherine Kelly emphasises Terry's inspirational role in modelling public speaking, effective public speaking, for an emerging generation of activists, and Kelly calls them would-be suffrage Rosalinds enrolled in elocution classes in preparation for platform speaking. Above all, however, the suffrage movement appropriated Shakespeare via feminist rewritings in print and performance. Particular, particular interest clustered around four characters, Catherine from The Taming of the Shrew, Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing, Ophelia from Hamlet, and Paulina from The Winter's Tale. And these are all characters who are either involved in disruptive relationships with men or who seek to protect a slandered woman from being destroyed by a man. So in 1912, the committed suffragist Violet Vambra appeared at Stratford-upon-Avon as a frightened, vulnerable Catherine whose descent from a higher level of outspoken truth, as one, critic put, as one critic put it, to the lower level of dissimulation apparently required by a conventionally happy marriage. So um, generally at this point, The Shrew was being played for comedy. It was very much knockabout and slapstick. And um, audiences were not generally made to feel uncomfortable by Catherine's plight, although obviously some did. And so with Vanbrugh shivering in fear on stage, Frank Benson's Petruchio, which was apparently not particularly violent by contemporary standards, seemed to local critics to be not taming but actually abducting Catherine, appearing an anachronism in despotism. The local newspaper cr critic concluded that it is hard to understand why the poet should glory in degrading Catherine. Ophelia's relationships with Polonius and Hamlet differently catalyzed suffragist writing about male slander of female morality. And this um, arguably can be seen as reflecting contemporary slurs on the sexuality, the morality, and even the sanity of politically and professionally active women in the early 20th century. In 1911, the actress Faye Davis performed a prologue before an AFL, AFL matinee. Written by Israel Zangville, the prologue similarly condemns Hamlet's male insolence of sneer and doubt in sexually insulting Ophelia. In 1913, the actress Jess Doran published an anonymous polemic, The True Ophelia, which is just fabulous, offering sympathetic rewrites of marginalised female characters. 
So when um, Polonius warns Ophelia that she is the subject of gossip in Denmark's court, Dorian emphasises the horrible and terrible trauma Ophelia experiences on learning of the gross insinuations and vulgar and malicious slurs. Suffragist accounts of Ophelia took two morals from her experience. First, Zangville's prologue asserts that suffrage would have saved Ophelia's life. So if he, if he argues, instead of suicide suggestion, to vote or not to vote had been the question, Ophelia would have survived, being able, at Hamlet's fat form, to thunder suffrage. Consequently, Hamlet, and not the mentally disturbed Ophelia, is seen by Zangville to whine and wail and suffer from masculine hysteria. Secondly, suffragist accounts of Ophelia emphasise her emotional vulnerability in the absence of an effective protector. Effective protective bonds between women were central to suffragist interest in Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing and Paulina in Winter's Tale. So Annie Horniman on the left, the founder of the modern regional repertory system, produced Much Ado About Nothing in 1910 and this was the first Shakespeare production that the suffragist press took any kind of interest in. Harley Granville Barker, on the right, staged A Winter's Tale in 1912. In addition to praising Beatrice for scorning the mere protestations of a lover when there is work to do in righting a wrong, as the suffragist paper Common Cause did, reviewers also praised in Much Do About Nothing the depiction of Hero and Beatrice's friendship rather than the play's romantic relationships. However, it was Paulina who was indisputably the favourite character of suffragist criticism, and to very, very quickly recap the plot of A Winter's Tale. So Queen Hermione is accused of adultery by the insanely je jealous King Leontes, and Paulina, her friend, a lady of the court, is the only one who stands up to Leontes. Hermione apparently dies. Um, Hermione's innocence is, innocence is then found out, but actually Paulina hides Hermione for 16 years while constantly reminding Leontes of his crimes and basically breaking him. And then only when he is completely broken and repentant does she return Hermione to him. So A Winter's Tale opens at the Savoy Theatre in 1912, featuring several um, Actresses Franchise League actresses, including Lila McCarthy as Hermione and Esme Berenger as Paulina. So you can see Lila McCarthy. She was married Hartley Granfield Barker and Esme Berenger on the right doing a sword dance. She was a very, very keen sword, swordswoman. And their presence and popularity, because they were both really quite big stars at the time, although forgotten now, not only drew suffragist audiences to the theatre, um, but linked the plays via the actresses' political identities with activism. And um, what's interesting is that during the Savoy Shakespeare's, and there's a few of them, suffragists will actually come to the theatre, buy tickets, and then in the interval get up and make speeches. And these are largely actually quite well received, which shows that the Savoy was becoming a space both for quite mainstream popular Shakespeare, because all the papers are interested in these productions, but somewhere where suffragists can go and be sure of a reasonable audience. Um, a Winter's Tale was eagerly reported by the most radical suffrage papers, notably Votes for Women and the Suffragettes, and these were the ones who most advocated militant action. And McCarthy and Beringer's, Beringer's presence as both actresses and suffragists, although not suffragette campaigners, implied via the actresses' bodies a kind of semiotic equivalence between the public creative acts of theatre-making and demonstration, and I think this would have been particularly true when demonstration was going on in the audience and the actresses during the days were protesting against things like the Hunger, um, the Cat and Mouse Act, which um, legitimised force feeding in prison. A winter's, so A Winter's Tale, very popular in the suffragist papers, and Hermione herself was likened to a persecuted suffragette through emphasis on her sufferings in the trial scene, 
and one critic thought the whole play should be retitled The Conspiracy Trial of Hermione. By 1912, with hunger strikes underway, Hermione's experience would have looked like suffragist propaganda. Um, Hermione's extreme physical weakness, slander by men, unjust imprisonment and a sudden death leading to her martyrdom, which also indirectly transfers political power from Leontes to Paulina, it's a suffragette propagandist's dream. The socialist writer Christina Walsh argued of Hermione's sufferings that there is not in all literature a completer exposition of the humiliation of women's position. Esme Beringer's Paulina was read as evidence that the Savoy production was seeking to rope in Shakespeare on the side of the suffrage angels, which is what the Observer said. The suffragette, as in the paper called the suffragette critic, called Paulina the eternal suffragette whom all the greatest geniuses of all ages have loved to portray. So if Hermione was a suffragist prisoner, Paulina was an agitator. The Votes for Women critic saw her waiting in the anteroom to see the governor, as so many of us have been at the gates of Holloway since 1905. And a lot, so a lot of suffragette women watching the play saw the experiences Paulina goes through in standing up for her friend, visiting, visiting her in prison, um, making deputations to the king as reminiscent of their own experience. So Paulina became what the papers called the real heroine of the play, modelling both politically effective tactics and of upholding sisterhood by, in the words of one critic, telling tyrants to their faces of the wronged woman and the helpless child, turning full on the unjust king the flood of his fierce eloquence. And personal bonds between suffragettes were essential to acts of political violence. In 1913, for example, Mary Richardson attacked the Rokeby Venus specifically to avenge Emily and Pankhurst, while the small groups of suffragettes who met newly released hunger strikers for celebratory breakfasts were performing public acts of care as well as political gestures. Paulina was thus an even better Shakespearean role model than Beatrice. Uh, Paulina and Beatrice make similar speeches about their friends' sufferings. Paulina says of Hermione that she would by combat make her good were I a man, while Beatrice wishes rather more famously, oh God that I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace. So she can attack Claudio, who's jilted her cousin. However, whereas Beatrice ultimately has to rely in the play on Benedict um, to avenge Hero and the priest to come up with a plan, Paulina does everything on her own for 16 years. For suffragists then, as the suffragette newspaper makes clear, Paulina is the woman who makes things happen, just as the real heroines of the 20th century are the women who make things happen, the militant suffragettes. The critic concludes, were all women like Hermione and Perdita, the play's rejected mother and child, Hermione's would continue to be unjustly degraded, Perdita's to be unjustly abandoned. Instead, Paulina rights wrongs and transforms victimhood, averting the narrative of female destruction. For a feminist, the Savoy A Winter's Tale was thus the most satisfying performance of its day. So all the suffragist approaches to Shakespeare, which I've considered, are primarily affirmative. But just to end this whistle-stop tour, I'll mention two suffragists who um, found Shakespeare's portrayal of women problematic. These were the University of Glasgow lecturer Muriel Gray in 1911 and the London-based suffragist Nora Strantham in 1914. Both wrote articles for the Englishwoman magazine, and they have very similar concerns. Firstly, they felt that Shakespeare's women lacked the inner vision and analysis of motive and psychological complexity which Shakespeare gives his men. Secondly, they felt that Shakespeare's reputation as the girl's friend was based on the idea that he knew what women were like because it's possible to say that men are like this and women are like this, which Gray and Stranson both objected to. And they saw the women as pri in Shakespeare primarily as what I think 
Stransom calls the need-filling creature. So primarily they serve um, male fantasy or as functions of the plot rather than being people in their own right. Um, so Cordelia, for example, in Lear, we see her almost entirely as in relation to Lear, Lear rather than as a person with an inner life. Well, what's fascinating and I think valuable about this is that this almost exactly anticipates some of the feminist cultural materialism we see in the 1980s. So if you look at um, Kate McCluskey's The Patriarchal Bard, which is a big, um, it's in the big Dolomore anthology, um, she makes a very similar complaints about King Lear, commenting that Goneril and Reagan's villainy is just a function of the plot, they're not real people. And Stransom and Gray, like McCluskey, reject character criticism, which is the discussion of the characters as though they're real people. Now, whether or not you agree with this reading, it's fascinating to think that by reintroducing suffragist Shakespeare criticism we, into our feminist historiographies, we can reorient our consideration of second and third wave, as well as Victorian and Edwardian feminism. And although the role of suffragist dramatists such as Cicely Hamilton and Elizabeth Robbins receives more attention in suffragette theatre histories, actually Shakespeare and Shakespearean actresses had much more visibility and legitimacy in the contemporary mainstream. For one thing, Shakespearean actresses embodied the relative professional and financial freedom more and more women were craving, because they were, it, um, acting was a form of employment for the middle class single woman, and it enabled financial independence in a way that few other legitimate professions did. Moreover, actresses were a source of fascination to women of all political persuasions. Um, even Mary Corelli, who was madly anti-feminist, a very popular um, novelist, she completely opposed suffrage, but she wrote sonnets about how brilliant Ellen Terry was. In particular, knowing that pre-war feminist Shakespeare was already inflected with suffragist issues through the bodies, writings, and criticism of actresses can perhaps offer a useful intertext for rereading Wolfe's imaginative biography of Judith Shakespeare in A Room of One's Own. In a sense, um, the actresses themselves are, are more useful figures than Judith Shakespeare because they were, doing, they were doing some of the things, they provided more useful role models for the kind of um, frustrated but also politically significant creativity that Wolfe tries to see in Judith Shakespeare. And as um, demarcating an era, although I've been looking at the suffragettes so whose role dramatically changes with the advent of the First World War. It's interesting to note that A Room of One's Own was first delivered as a Cambridge paper in 1928, which is coincidentally the year that Ellen Terry died. Now, um, this paper ends more with a question mark than a full stop because this is something I've been writing at the moment. It's the final chapter of the first draft of my thesis and I really look forward to any contributions or suggestions anyone can make. Suff the Suffragettes and Shakespeare is, a, to me, a strangely understudied area. There's three articles on it, as far as I can tell, two by the same person. So if anyone has any suggestions <laughs> for resources or um, directions in which to take this, because the Edwardians is a very new area for me, I'd be delighted to hear them, and thank you very much for listening.